Welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. This is episode 686 with Stephen Landsberg, outsmarting an economist and asking big questions. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another interview on the Hidden Wire podcast. I hope you're very well. And first and foremost, guys, thank you very much for taking the time out again to tune into another episode here at the Hidden Wire. I hope you're loving the episodes, guys, and particularly the interviews. To be honest, there is not much that competes or compares to the joy, the passion, the, the curiosity, the, the, the great value that I get from interviewing such spectacular guests and then sharing it with you guys as well. It truly is something that um, makes this hobby, this project, The Hidden Why, very, very satisfying and very, very sustainable uh, to me. And I hope you're loving it, guys. As always, uh, for any of the comments that you have in regards to the interviews or the shows that I'm releasing, if you've got any thoughts, uh, please do jump onto the hiddenwhy.com and let me know. Um, you can reach me through the comments of any of the shows. You can also reach me directly via email. Today, guys, I'm talking with Stephen Landsberg. He's an acclaimed author and a professor of economics, uh, who in this interview dares us to outsmart an economist. He wrote his new book, Can You Outsmart an Economist? to inspire and show us how to do just that by expanding the way we think about decision-making and problem-solving. Guys, we go behind the scenes. He shares some puzzles that are pretty exciting too. And it's really just a way to shake things up, to help us look at life through a different lens, through the lens of an economist, perhaps through the lens of some differing perspectives that might actually help us improve our behaviors and make better decisions. I hope you enjoy. Cheers. Hey, Stephen, welcome to the Hidden Wild Podcast. How are you today? Very good, thank you. Thanks for uh, coming on the show, mate. I'm looking forward to discussing the uh, the area of your work. I'm happy to be here. So, mate, you've got um, plenty of books you've authored. How many books are you up to now? Oh, goodness. Uh, I haven't counted lately. I think it's seven, maybe, somewhere around seven. Where do you find the time? Where do I find the time? Well, I, I guess uh, the same way anybody else does, by not doing other things I ought to be doing, like uh, taking care of the house, and I rely on my <laughs> wife to take care of those things for me. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Um, so look, mate, you've got some, so yeah, some fascinating books, um, and, and your newest one, which I, th- I think we're going to discuss today, probably primarily, is Can You Outsmart an Economist? Uh, 1,000 Puzzles to Train Your Brain. So sounds like an exciting read. I haven't actually read it myself yet, but I'm certainly fascinated to explore it a little bit deeper and um, hence why I bring you on the show so we can discuss these things and uh, encourage the audience to, to pick up a copy as well. I, I hope they do and uh, if they want a, a sneak preview, they can visit my website at outsmartaneconomist.com. That's all one word, outsmartaneconomist.com and they can uh, they can read the introduction for free and read some of the advanced reviews and, and have a chance to buy the book. That's where you post all your blogs as well, yeah? Uh, my blog is at thebigquestions.com. Oh, the big uh, so there's actually two websites that I want to tell your listeners about. Outsmartaneconomist.com will tell you about my new book, and thebigquestions.com is my blog. Yeah, cool. So we'll stick those links in the show notes too, guys. So check it out there at thehiddenwire.com. Um, cool. Well, look, let's jump into it. Um, but first of all, um, just in regards to your work, um, what's it all about? Like, why why do you write so many books about the, the um, you know, the, your field of work. And, and you write it in an entertaining way too, to keep it fascinating and, I, I guess, get people involved. Well, it's it's all about uh, showing people that economists have useful ways of thinking about things and that the the uh, 
when you learn the logic of economics, uh, the whole world looks different. You 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 get new insights into everyday life. You get new insights into the way people uh, relate to each other. You get new insights into the news. And uh, you can also have a lot of fun along the way. And my new book, uh, as you said, it's a, uh, uh, centered around uh, 100 and some puzzles and brain teasers that are designed in the first instance to be fun, but in the second instance to actually teach you something about economics uh, when you when you when you solve the puzzle. Um, I'm uh, I'm trying to make people better citizens. I'm trying to make them wiser voters. I'm trying to make them smarter in their businesses, smarter in their personal lives, and most of all, I'm trying to show them that that thinking in this sort of way can be a lot of fun. Okay. So economics is, um, you know, I just remember at university this subject and I, I totally didn't like it. <laughs> I sort of steered away from it as much as I could. But um, I have read a lot of different books, um, including the works of um, Dan Ariely. Um, so, you know, it, it is it is kind of fascinating. But what what is economics exactly like? Is it, I mean, is it about applying logic to everyday life? Is that what it is? Uh, it seems to me that it's it's about starting and taking seriously the assumption that most people most of the time have goals and are pursuing those goals in reasonable ways. And when you see people who appear to be behaving in ways that are crazy, and we see that all the time, um, a lot of time there is a hidden logic behind what they're doing. And, uh, and if you can figure out the hidden logic, you can learn a lot about what's going on in their lives. You can learn, you can, you, you become more empathetic. You, uh, learn more about, uh, how you can, uh, productively interact with other people to help them and to help yourself, uh, all by trying to understand the hidden motives behind things people do. To, to take, uh, the one example that comes to mind is, um, banks build these enormous, uh, buildings with the pillars and the fancy architecture and so on. They sink a fantastic amount of uh, money into that uh, in a way that does not make it any more uh, fun for you to do your banking. Well, it, if you think about it for a moment, it mm. kind of seems crazy. Um, uh, but if you think about it for another moment, uh, there's a good reason behind it, which is the one thing your bank wants you to know is that they plan to be around for a while. Uh, you, you don't want to you don't want to uh, set up your accounts at a bank that you think is going to disappear and worst of all disappear with your money. Uh, it's very important for a bank, much more than for a grocery store, to send the message that they're going to be around a long time. And so the answer to the riddle, why do banks build these fancy buildings when grocery stores don't, is that banks need to let you know they plan to be around. Grocery stores don't let need to know the, uh, to let you know yeah, that right. at least not to the same degree. Makes makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you just sort of don't think about these things, do you? Uh, too often, anyway. I just, I, I just often, thought it's because banks have have too much of our money. <laughs> well, you know, grocery stores make a lot of money too. I'm not sure whether banks or grocery <laughs> stores are more profitable. Um, but uh, uh, the uh, again, the lesson is often just to look a little bit beyond the obvious. Uh, another example from my new book: Can you outsmart an economist? If you put a strong pig and a weak pig in a box, and this is an experiment the biologists have done, it ends up uh, – it, it turns out every time exactly the way the economists would predict, but not the way most people would predict. You put a strong pig and a weak pig in a box where there's a lever at one end and a food bowl at the other. If you press, press the lever, the bowl fills up with food. Yep. 
the strong pig is much stronger than the weak pig and and can basically can can uh, force the weak pig to do anything he wants. Who pushes the lever? Who gets the food? Hmm. I would say the uh, the weak pig pushes the lever and the, the big strong pig gets the food. Ah, yes. Um, you might think that. You might think <laughs> that. But in fact, if that's how it goes, the weak pig has no incentive to keep pressing that lever. The weak pig realizes pretty soon that the strong pig's going to get all the food and he stops pressing the lever. Now what happens is if the strong pig wants food, he's got to press the lever. Now, when the strong pig presses the lever, the weak pig waits down by the food, eats most of the food until the strong pig comes running, pushes him away and gets the last 15% of it. That gives the strong pig just enough of an incentive to keep pressing the lever. 15% of the food is better than none of the food. Uh, but the weak pig gets to stand there by the bowl and eat most of the food before the strong pig can get down there. Uh, and so what happens is uh, over time, the strong pig becomes weak and the weak pig begins, becomes strong because the weak pig's getting all the food. And so the, uh, the roles reverse. The roles reverse. And the moral there is you really need to stop for a second and think about incentives just because the pig is weak doesn't mean he's going to press the lever for the strong pig. If the strong pig is down there by the bowl and the weak pig can see that, there's no reason to press that lever. Right. The strong pig is smart enough to know that if he presses the lever, he'll be able to at least get some of the food, though not most of it, because he's going to have to run the length of that box before he can get it. Uh, and uh, again, thinking a little bit beyond the obvious, thinking uh, uh, thinking a little more uh, beyond what's what's on the surface. Yeah, well, it's looking at it from a, a bit of a different perspective, isn't it? I, I suppose. I mean, as you said, it's it's all about the goals and motivations, and um, we sort of, I guess, the way that was worded is is you know we just start thinking about the strong pig and and its ability to outpower um, the weaker pig or even outsmart the weaker pig, um, but we're not looking at from the goals and motivations from the little pig or the weak pig. Absolutely, and again, you know, if you look at hidden motivations like that and think a little bit deeply about incentives, you discover other surprising things. I'll give you another example. Um, we have a lot of evidence that students, when they're filling out their evaluation forms for their college professors, good-looking professors get much better ratings than, than uh, less good-looking professors. Uh, the, the ratings from the students are very highly correlated yep. with the physical appearance of the professor. Mm -hmm. Now, you might think that that's because students are shallow and they care about physical appearance rather than the quality of the teaching. And I've seen a lot of articles in the popular press suggesting exactly that. To an economist, this looks like exactly what you would expect, and here's why. Good-looking people have a lot more career opportunities than less good-looking people do. Beautiful people succeed better in retail. They succeed better in acting, in modeling, all sorts of things where you have to deal with the public. So a beautiful person who has gone into teaching is a person who has turned down a lot of other career opportunities in order to teach. On average, this is going to be somebody who really loves teaching. The less good-looking person had fewer opportunities. And again, there's, of course, people all over the map. But to a larger extent, the less good-looking people 
they had fewer opportunities. Some of them went into teaching just because they it was the it was the best opportunity left available to them. They're less enthusiastic. They're less excited about teaching, and so you would expect, as long as good-looking people have better opportunities elsewhere, that those who choose to go into teaching will be better teachers. Those who, uh, or as I say in my book, uh, again I'll mention the title: "Can You Outsmart an Economist?" As I say in my book, if you show me a lighthouse keeper with movie star good looks. I will show you probably one of the world's best lighthouse keepers because the fact that he gave up a career in movies in order to run a lighthouse means he really cared about lighthouses. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I suppose I agree. Um, there's, there's some level of skepticism or doubt in it all, but um, you know. Uh, and, and as I say in the book, as I say in the book, that none of these answers is absolutely definitive and yeah. you, you are welcome to argue with them you're welcome to send me an email and argue with me and if you send me a good argument i will put it on my blog and i will say what i think of it and i will encourage my readers to respond to it and flesh it out and you may have a better answer than i do but i want to illustrate with the answers that i give here the way you can use economic reasoning to reach a surprising and quite possibly correct answer. You don't always know you're correct, but at least you've got a new way of looking at it that might be correct and that you would have overlooked completely if you didn't have this way of thinking. What is the value of, of um, you know, thinking as like an economist, um, economist uh, as, as far well, as, you know, other than the, the interesting sort of side of it or the entertaining side of it? Like, is that, you know, a couple of the examples you've given us so far are, you know, they do open your mind to, to different angles. As I say, they're all meant to be entertaining, but they're also meant to be useful. Uh, I, I give some examples in the book, and I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I don't think they would do well on the radio because you need a couple pictures in front of you in order to make sense of them. But I give some examples in the book where a person can appear to be making perfectly rational, sensible financial choices at every step along the way. And yet, if you're aware of the strategy they're following, you you can, as long as they are really committed to that strategy, you can take every penny they have away from them. Uh, people, uh, they say, I will invest in, in things with the following characteristics. I won't invest in things with the following characteristics. I'm willing to take these risks. I'm not willing to take those other risks. You can make a list of perfectly sensible-sounding criteria which are not sensible at all in the sense that if you follow them and you run up against a clever enough person, that person will, by offering you things that you've already said you're willing to do, take every penny that you have with certainty. Um, so it, it pays to understand that a apparently rational investment strategy can in fact be disastrously irrational and how to recognize the difference between one and the other. And there is a series of puzzles in the book that lead you through that. Again, I think in order to fully understand those puzzles, you need a couple of pictures in front of you. And so a podcast is probably the wrong place to give the details, but I will encourage people to pick up the book if they want to look at it. So what's what's the um, the difference here between rationality and, and irrationality? Like we can at least explore that as far as how, how the two work and, and why can something that appears so rational um actually be quite irrational well uh, i think the reason something that can appear rational uh is actually first of all what does irrational mean irrational means behaving in a way that lets other people take all your money from you. uh it means behaving in a way that 
does not further your goals. In this case, presumably your goal so is to make money, not to lose money. It, it's it's behaviors Irrash- that go against irrational- the underlying uh, achievement of a goal. Irrationality means behaving in a way that undercuts the goal that you're trying to achieve. And um, the reason that a lot of irrationality appears rational on the surface is that our brains are not that great. Our brains uh, evolved in an environment uh, where uh, we did not face a lot of the kinds of decisions that we, we, you know, our our ancestors hunting on the savanna did not have to choose between two different retirement plans. Um, And um, people um, sometimes make uh, terrible mistakes because uh, even though they're very smart in a lot of ways, their brains are not tweaked to think uh, uh, exactly correctly about some of the problems we face in the modern world, and therefore uh, they end up making some um, uh, they end up making uh, some mistakes of a sort that I think economists can teach them to make less of. So, what um, what are some common everyday irrational behaviors that uh, the general populace might be doing? Just to put it in context. Um, he, here's one. Um, uh, the um, let's see. Uh, so uh, I'll come back to teachers again. Uh, there is a widespread belief among teachers that uh, after you hand uh, exams back to students, if you chastise the ones who did poorly, if you if you tell them you're disappointed in them. That will help them. In the, it's tough love, but if you're if you're tough on the on the ones who did poorly, you tell them you're disappointed. You tell them you want them to do better. They generally do better on the next test. Yeah. Whereas, if you praise the ones who did well, they don't seem to improve as a result of that. In fact, they often disimprove. And uh, many teachers have jumped to the conclusion from this, and there have been articles in education journals telling them this that uh, uh, that proves that it's not worth your while to praise the good students, but you should spend some time chastising the poor ones. In fact, what's going on is that, um, and again, as any economist could tell you, it's as simple as this. If you've done very poorly on an exam, the only way to go is up. Um, it's very hard to go down if you got 10%. Uh, just by random uh, guessing, you're probably going to do better next time. Uh, it's very hard to go up if you got 98% just by because of random fluctuations in in uh, your how much sleep you got the night before. You you're it's much easier to go down from there than it is to go up from there. And so most poor students on a given exam improve on the next exam no matter how you treat them. Most good students on a given exam do worse on the next exam no matter how you treat them. And again, if you're thinking like an economist, I think um, that's obvious to you. If you're not, uh, it might not be immediately obvious. Um, another example, uh, which was uh, very big in the news some years mm-hmm. ago, uh, uh, Berkeley's uh, graduate program, uh, the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, it was uh, it was discovered that across their graduate departments, something like um, I wonder if I have the exact numbers in front of me. I'm not sure I do, but um, uh, it was very close to this. Something like 50% of the male applicants were getting in, 20% of the female applicants were getting in. Hmm. Uh, That looked to a lot of people like gender discrimination, and it looked to so many people like gender discrimination that 
there was a lawsuit against Berkeley, and a lot of money was put into this lawsuit. The lawsuit fell apart when it was discovered that each graduate department at Berkeley makes its own admission decisions, and within each department, men and women were being admitted at about the same rate. The reason that if you looked university-wide, women were getting rejected is because women were disproportionately applying to the more selective departments. Women were, on average, applying to, I don't know which department was which, but let's say women were applying to the med school, which was taking 10% of its applicants, and men were applying to the law school, which was taking 90% of its applicants. Uh, if you looked at the law school alone, there was no uh, uh, evidence of discrimination. If they looked at the medical school alone, there was no evidence of discrimination. Um, but if you added up over the medical school where you had a lot of women getting rejected – and the law school where you had a lot of men getting accepted, it looked like discrimination university-wide. Uh, when that was pointed out by economists, uh, the, uh, the lawsuit fell apart, and, uh, but not, not until after a lot of lawyers had made a lot of money. Um, so looking a little bit um, beyond the numbers, knowing when aggregate numbers disguise the truth of what's going on, or sometimes uh, just the opposite, knowing when when sometimes you you fail to see the trees for the forest and other times you fail to see the forest for the trees. And I've got a number of examples in the book where ordinary everyday reasoning will will lead you to make exactly that kind of mistake. And a little bit of just a, a one level deeper of thought will will save you from making those mistakes. Yeah, and I guess uh, I mean, it's. it's probably just we just take things for granted or just do things almost automatically as well and and think very surfacely about um some of the decisions we're making and some of the behaviors that we're doing without going deeper but um how do you encourage that um i mean i guess by reading your book might be a good place to start but how do you encourage people to look a little bit deeper and, and think about things a little bit differently uh, above all i try to encourage it by by emphasizing that thinking this way is fun, that it's, it, it's all about solving puzzles and people like to solve puzzles. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, in my past books, I've presented a lot of things at, as puzzles and, um, uh, uh, discussed the answers. This is the first book where I've actually, you know, explicitly put it, uh, laid things out as puzzle number one, puzzle number two, puzzle number three, uh, and divided them into, um, puzzles and solutions. Again, uh, the solutions are my best answers. I'm not sure they're always the right answers. Uh, but I, I think emphasizing that it's puzzle solving and that puzzle solving is fun. That's, that's been, uh, my approach to teaching economics. I think it's worked, uh, well in the classroom and I think it's worked well in the books. So when you present a, uh, what is it, an idea or a puzzle, I suppose, um, you take the, the reader on a journey through exploring, I guess the the logic behind you know what we first perceive as possible solutions or behaviors to achieve the the end goal, um, and then you sort of dig deeper and show them alternatives. Absolutely, absolutely. If you want another example, um, what happens when you put a price ceiling on wheat? Um, uh, suppose suppose you you make it illegal to charge more than a certain amount for a bushel of wheat. Less yep. than what's now being charged. What happens to the price of bread? If bread is made it, out of wheat. Yep, yep. We, 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 we lower the price of wheat. Most people will tell you, 
I, I certainly know by, I've asked this question on exams. And so I know that my students will tell me that if you lower the price of wheat, bread then you've lowered the price of making a loaf of, you've lowered the cost of making a loaf of bread and the price of bread will come down in the stores. In fact, exactly the opposite is true because when you put a price ceiling on wheat, the wheat farmers produce less wheat. There are shortages of wheat because there are shortages of wheat, less bread gets made. And because there's less bread in the stores, the price goes up because there are shortages of bread. So uh, the price ceiling on wheat actually causes the price of bread to go up. Again, a very simple example of something where uh, a little bit of economics gets – and this is one where I'm sure, I'm sure my answer is right, and I think all economists would agree my answer is right. Most non-economists get it wrong. And so, uh, again, just a, a little bit of thinking beyond the obvious gets you a long way. Yeah, and I'm just I'm sort of thinking about how we can sort of give, you know, obviously uh, encourage the guys to read your book, but um, just to give some practical takeaways perhaps uh, for the audience because, I mean, in our everyday lives we uh, we are motivated by uh, certain goals um, individually um, or biologically, I suppose, um, and we're making decisions and and doing behaviours um, that are either. Uh, going to be positive or negatively affecting those goals and, and the achievement of them. How can we sort of, you know, what sort of practical advice can you give to help us, you know, avoid making poor decisions and, and improve, I guess, you know, the decision qualities? You know, I think part of the difficulty with answering that is that everybody's facing different problems. Everybody's yeah. got different, um, everybody's got different goals. Everybody's got different constraints. And so to give, any kind of general advice um, is difficult, but what 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 is useful, I think, is to train your brain. Train your brain by thinking about other people's problems and how other people solve those problems. And so, uh, you know, the book is full of examples of problems that other people face that might not be the same as the problems that you'll ever face. But if you think about the way they're solving those problems, if you think about the mistakes they're making. It trains your brain to do a better job when you turn to thinking about the particular problems that you've got that I wasn't aware of and therefore didn't put into my book. Um, I, I think that it's it's a it's a general process of learning to think beyond the obvious and learning to see that if you use this over and over again, oh yes, I can solve that problem which wasn't really related to my life. I can solve this other problem that wasn't really related to my life. I can solve this other one that wasn't related to my life. I've learned to solve problems, and now I can take those same skills and use them uh, uh, in my own life, trying to make myself uh, a, a better uh, a better citizen, a better mm. business person, or uh, you know, a more useful member of my community, or more useful to my family, or more useful to whatever goals that uh, that you happen to be pursuing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of people would would argue that you know problem solving skills, uh, particularly for, for younger people, teaching them that early in life is is a great skill to have throughout life. Absolutely, and you know, it, it's I feel a little bit like you know, if a student asks me, um, "Why should I learn addition?" Uh, what are the practical things that can solve for me? Well, I could go through a list of practical occasions when people need addition. But uh, the main thing is that if you learn to add numbers, you're going to have a skill that's going to serve you well in all sorts of unexpected circumstances. And I think that learning to think beyond the obvious in a way an economist does, the main thing is not the um, uh, particular problems that I happen to be able to think of that it will help you with. It's the way of thinking 
that you'll take your entire life and use in all sorts of ways that I can't even begin to foresee. Have you um have you have you created a game uh, sort of similar to to this book? A game similar to this book. You know, I have I think that'd be a great a idea. about I have blogged a little about some games that I would like to create. I, they don't actually exist, but I think it is a great idea. I have thought about it. I have talked to people about it, and you have just reminded me that i got to get back on that right away. Get on to it, yeah. Well, I, I think it would be a great way to encourage that in the, um, you know, in the household is to you know, sit down there and, and be addressed with problems and, and then you know, make a game out of um, trying to solve them. I mean, that's what a great, great way to bring... Um, I guess that analytical process uh, into our lives on a, on a daily basis, because I guess um, the, the problems that I see is that people are so busy, they just continue going about doing what they're doing without actually stopping and thinking and trying to look at things um, through a different lens. You know, there is a chapter in one of my earlier books called the armchair economist. There's a chapter in there where I describe in quite a bit of detail, a, a computer game, video game that I think would teach people enormous lessons about how to succeed better in 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 any in any circumstance where they're pursuing well-defined goals where they've got a good idea of what they want to accomplish how you sort out good strategies from bad strategies and again i i think it's probably a little bit more uh involved than you want to get in on the radio where i can't draw pictures but if you were to pick up my book the armchair economist you can read that eight or ten page chapter where I describe what I think that game would look like and the the lessons people would learn from it. And if you want to go ahead and make that game, I'm giving it to you for free. It's go go ahead and run with the idea. So just just quickly, if, if we're looking at setting ourselves a goal, because I mean, there's lots of people talking about goals, um, you know, setting a goals and, and how to go about it, smart goals, all that sort of thing. What just a quickly, um, maybe a couple of things that we could do to help improve the accomplishment of those goals to ensure its success. Uh, I've, first of all, uh, stop and think. I mean, stop and stop and think is is really good all general purpose advice. And stop and think. I've used the phrase so many times already, but I'll use it again. Think beyond the obvious. Be aware that obvious arguments, uh, arguments that are obviously true, are often non-obviously wrong. They're wrong in ways that are not so obvious. Think a little deeper. Run it by other people, for God's sake, um, and cultivate the skill of thinking deeply. Cultivate the skill of thinking beyond the obvious. Try to apply that to yourself. Be self-critical. Talk to other people, for goodness sake. Get uh, get advice from other people. Uh, and also, uh, you know, make sure that whatever you're doing, whatever you're pursuing, is something you enjoy. Because in the end, um, if you set yourself a goal that requires you to do stuff you don't enjoy, it's very, very difficult to make yourself keep doing it. Uh, mm. And so I think uh, that um, uh, sticking to things, it, you're always going to be competing with somebody. And if you're competing, and if you don't like what you're doing, and you're competing with somebody who does like what they're doing, they're going to have more energy than you. They're going to be able to put in more hours a day than you, and they're going to be more effective than you. So find something you really like doing. Um, yeah. Thinking about economics is something I really like doing, and I was fortunate to find that. And I hope everybody else finds uh, the things that that work for them. Tell us, um, what what do you what sort of practices? And I guess this leads to my first question. Um, I sort of ask all guests uh, a group of questions towards the end of each interview. But um, what sort of practices do you 
um, yourself do daily to put yourself in that position of, you know, thinking differently about things? You know, um, I have had the, the good fortune to um, find thing, things that I, I love to do and do them every day of my life. And I, I have to say my, my only practice has been to wake up every morning and do whatever I most feel like doing. And that has paid off for me. And I realize that it's, it's a glib thing to say to somebody who has not figured out what they want to do. Uh, but I, I had the good fortune of stumbling onto uh, – economics stumbling onto economic ways of thinking and and other things i've also done some work in 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 math and philosophy and statistics and i had the good fortune of of stumbling onto some ways of thinking that i just found absolutely fascinating and every day i wake up and if i feel like meeting with students i meet with students if i feel like writing a book i work on writing a book if i feel like writing a blog post i work on writing a blog post and if i feel like understanding something new that I never understood before, then I spend the day thinking about that thing. And um, uh, fortunately, that has worked very well for me. And I've not had to make some of the hard decisions that other people have to make because they have not found the thing that works for them. So um, uh, uh, all I can say is the, the best thing the best thing to do is to be is to be lucky, uh, and if you're not lucky, keep looking for something that's going to make you feel like you are lucky. Keep looking for something that's going to make you want to get out of bed every day and 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 get to work on it. Well, I think, like you said before, if you find something you love, then um, you know getting out of bed to do it is is an absolute joy, um, and you know privileged uh, to those people that you know can wake up every morning and get out of bed and just do whatever they feel like doing. Um, how do your family go with uh, living with an economist? Economist. Well, uh, you know, it's just me and my wife at this point, and yeah. uh, I think we're I think we're doing great. Uh, she is uh, she's a biologist, but okay. uh, she has learned a lot of economics by uh, living in the same household with me, and she has started uh, editing my books, and she is absolutely my most valuable critic. Uh, Can you outsmart an economist? Is uh, uh, on almost every page. There are improvements due to her. She. Uh, 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 when some when I wrote something that made no sense to her, she forcefully pointed that out. And when I rewrote it and it still made no sense, she kept on pointing it out. She gives no quarter. She uh, she doesn't give up, and she forced me to keep rewriting and rewriting and rethinking. And in some cases, convinced me that the answers I was giving uh, were not as good as as her answers. And so I adopted her answers instead of mine. Okay. Uh, so uh, you know, she she's been great. When you're um, looking to, you know, you're encountering a new problem and you, you sort of wake up and, and that's sort of what you want to do. You want to, you know, look at that and, and sort of solve that problem. What what sort of environment do you do? I mean, is there is there anything in particular that you do to sort of get you in the right mindset and to the right place to, to think about these things? I mean, is it is it grabbing a coffee and sitting in a, a room with a bit of paper and pen or what's the process like for you? It's, it's often sitting in a room with a paper and pen, although I find that um, – uh, for me, it's it's important to keep changing the venue. I you know so I, I've got a very big house where I can change rooms, uh, but I can also go out and I can I have several different coffee shops I go to, and if it's a nice day, I go out and sit on a park bench. And I I find for me I'm more productive if I sort of try and work in a different place every day. I know for other people it's important to have a special place that you go to every day. Uh, different people are different as far as that goes, but I find that uh, if I have if I have sat in in a particular chair one day, then I've gotten everything I can get out of that chair, and the next day else. I want to try a different chair, a different room, or a different coffee shop. Yeah, that's pretty cool. 
Um, so on top of, you know, waking up and getting out of bed every day and doing what you want to do, are there any other routines or, or rituals that you particularly practice? Uh, well, I, I teach a couple hours a week. I, I teach only a couple hours a week at this point. Uh, so that's that's absolutely a routine. That's set by the calendar, and I don't get to choose. I love teaching. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to have uh, uh, the students that I've got, and they too have made my books a lot better by the questions that they've asked and the arguments they've made. Um, uh, and sometimes I give explanations that are correct but leave them scratching their heads, and then I realize I need to explain better, and those better explanations ultimately make it into the books. So I'm I'm grateful to my students. Showing up to teach is is the one thing I have every week that's got to happen at the same time in the same place. Yep. Um, everything everything else I pretty much vary. Okay. What what is your definition definition of success? Success is finding something that makes you want to get out of bed every day in order to do it. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Keep looking for, figure out what that, oh, give my 20-year-old self? Yeah. Okay. The advice I would give my 20-year-old self is spend less time trying to impress people and more time trying to really understand things. Um, Sometimes I suspect when I was 20 years old, I would work on understanding something, I would get halfway there, and then I would go out and try to prove to people how smart I was with my half understanding of this thing. I should have instead spent another week or another month or another six months if necessary sitting in a room with a pen and paper and understanding that thing better rather than trying to impress people with my half understanding. Cool. I think that's a mistake I made a lot, and I suspect there are other 20-year-olds making that same mistake. What uh, one tool, technique, or practice do you believe contributes most to your effectiveness or productivity? Uh, I I think just uh, – I'm afraid I'm getting repetitive, but it's just getting out of bed and wanting to do something. And as soon as you want to do it, then you do it one way or another. That's That's all I have to say on that. What's one bit of advice you'd give someone looking to make some change in their life? Looking to make some change in their life, uh, give some hard thought to what you want that change to be. Sometimes, uh, Sometimes you make a change and it ends up worse than it was before. Although in my own case, looking back on my life, in those cases where I've made changes, I've usually made the mistake of waiting too long. I've usually made the mistake of dithering and and thinking maybe I don't want to make this change when, in fact, most of the changes that I have wanted to make have ended up working out very well and uh, I should have made them sooner. Cool. That's good advice too. Don't wait too long. Um, If I was to serve you your last meal, what would you request? A last meal, <laughs> I would. Re- I I think if I knew it was my last meal, I wouldn't be thinking too much about the food. I uh, <laughs> I I think I'd request you to just leave me alone and let me let me enjoy my last few minutes without food and without distractions. What do you most like eating? What do I most like eating? Oh, my tastes are very pedestrian. I I eat uh, I eat a, a lot of. Uh, what do I most like eating? Uh, I think I'm going to go with M and M's. Okay. What is the uh, activity that brings you the greatest joy? Uh, There are so many joys in my life and so many joys to be found in the world. I don't, 
I don't think I can rank them. Just having fresh orange juice on a Sunday morning on a crisp fall day is is pretty great. Um, working, thinking about economics, talking to my students, writing books, blogging, interacting with my, my blog readers, um, talking to people like you, uh, helping people understand uh, better ways of thinking, stumping people with puzzles, being stumped by other people's puzzles, working on puzzles that other people have posed, um, sharing those puzzles in turn with other people. All of that is, is, is life is a great joy. I'm very, very, the, the saddest thing I know of is that it has to end someday. Yeah, yeah. What one book would you pass down to future generations? One book. One book to pass down to future generations. Uh, I, you know, you warned me in advance you were going to ask this question, and I should have been prepared, but I'm not. Uh, so, since I'm not, I'm going to say, "Can you outsmart an economist?" My new book. I think there's a lot of wisdom in there. It's the best wisdom I've got, and I, I. I'll, I'll I'll choose that. I'm sure if I thought about this more deeply, and I should have, I would have a better answer for you. But I'm going to go with that. What is one message you would text or tweet to the entire world? One message or quote, something like that, phrase maybe. One message I would tweet to the entire world is: uh, thinking is fun. Um, it it's it's um, some people have had the experience of. Going, having bad teachers who convinced them that thinking was not fun, but thinking is a lot of fun. Uh, thinking about puzzles, thinking about problems, solving problems, learning to understand things is the greatest joy I've ever found in life. And if you can divorce that from any bad experiences you've had with horrible teachers, uh, you can spend your life thinking about stuff and, and find joys that I don't think you can get any other way. Yeah, cool. Do you believe we all have a hidden why or a purpose? Uh, I, uh, no, I think, uh, I think we make our own purposes and I think our, uh, sometimes our whys are hidden from other people. Sometimes they're hidden from ourselves. So I guess in that sense, we do have a hidden why, but I think we make them ourselves. We ultimately, we decide what our goals are going to be. Ultimately, we decide what's going to make us happy. Yeah. Um, sometimes part of our brain does that, that other parts of our brain are not aware of. And sometimes other people do that and we don't quite see what's going on in their brains. A big, big part of Can You Outsmart an Economist is all about hidden whys. Somebody did something, uh, you know, a bank built a fancy building or a teacher behaved in a certain way or students rated their teachers in a certain way. Why did they do that? That's all about hidden whys and Funny figuring out what those yeah. hidden whys are. Yeah. yeah, cool. What does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? Uh, again, I fear I'm going to be repetitive. It means getting out of bed and, and thinking about things I love to think about every single day. Cool. And what would you say is the underlying motivation behind everything you do? Behind everything I do, it's wanting to have fun. Wanting to have fun. That's cool. Wanting to have fun. Um, so Stevie, just again, those, uh, websites that people can find you at, um, can you repeat those for us? Yes, absolutely. For my book, OutsmartAnEconomist.com, all one word, OutsmartAnEconomist.com. And for my blog, TheBigQuestions.com, TheBigQuestions.com. My blog's been a little slow lately. I haven't posted much, but there's a lot of uh, uh, back posts. If you scroll through the, 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 the old posts, you'll find a lot, and uh, there will be a lot of new stuff soon. 
That's great, Stephen. Thanks very much for coming on today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. This has been great. Guys, uh, all the uh, links will be in the show notes. Check, uh, check out Stephen. Uh, pick up a copy of his new book. And, um, yeah, let us know what you think of our conversation here by going to thehiddenwire.com and leaving your comments in the fields there. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwhite.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there. And also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee martin until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon